This week's podcast, two versions of scary. First up, how afraid should we be of nuclear war? Fred Kaplan joins us to talk about his book, The Bomb. Then, what if you prefer your scares to be fictional? Sarah Lyle will be here to tell us about the latest and best thrillers to get you through winter's cold nights. Plus, our critics will join us for the latest in literary criticism. This is the February 2nd episode of the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Fred Kaplan is here. He is the author of several books, including Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War, The Insurgents, David Petraeus, and The Plot to Change the American Way of War, The Wizards of Armageddon, and now The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Fred, thanks for being here. Oh, it's good to be here. So I want to bring up those previous books for a moment. The last book you did was about cybersecurity. It seems like you're sort of going back in time technologically to nuclear war. Well, you'd think. I really never thought that I would write another book about nuclear war. My first book was about nuclear war, The Wizards of Armageddon. It was about the group of think tank intellectuals who invented all these concepts of nuclear deterrence and war fighting. And so I thought, okay, that's done. And then Donald Trump did his fire and fury and— War seemed even not not unlikely, not not impossible, let's mm-hmm. say. And I said, "Oh God, I'm going to have to get back into the nuclear thing." And in the meantime, and this this kind of shows how old I am, the span of time between Hiroshima and the Wizards of Armageddon, which was published in 1983, is about the same as between Wizards of Armageddon and now. So. There's a lot to update, and a lot of new stuff has become declassified. So it, it's not just a, an updated version. It's it's an entirely new book. And, you know, again, I wouldn't have predicted it even a few years ago, but I'm glad I did it. One point that I make is that for about 30 years, nobody even thought about, much less worried about, nuclear war, nuclear weapons. All of a sudden, it's on the agenda. It's on the front pages, and people— they're frightened, but they're paralyzed, too, because they don't remember any of this stuff if, right. they, ever, if they ever knew it. So uh, I thought it was a good time to go back and say, OK, here's what's really been going on while we've all been sleeping on the holiday from history for the last half century. It was inconceivable that that this kind of thing would come up in any real way ever again. Did you think when you went into this of this as a kind of sequel to The Wizards of Armageddon? I thought of it as that initially, but then, see, Wizards of Armageddon was mainly about the think tank guys. When I wrote Wizards of Armageddon, there was almost nothing declassified about what, for example, Kennedy said or thought about nuclear weapons. Now there's a lot. The tapes, the secret tapes, weren't even known to have existed then. Now there's a zillion things declassified in addition to a lot that I got declassified way back then. So this really is a book more about the decision makers and the crises that some of them faced and how they dealt with the existence of this thing which looms over all of us. The title is The Bomb. The Bomb, in a way, is the protagonist. Right. It is the overriding force. And the, the story, which is the subtitle, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War, is how different people at different times with different conceptions 
dealt with it, how they came to grips with it. So you have the presidents and the generals in your subtitle. What about the State Department? Who has conceived of and determined nuclear policy in this country? And have they always been aligned, the State Department, the military, and the president? Or has it shifted from presidency? Well, even within the Defense Department, there were the civilians and the generals at, for example, Strategic Air Command, now called Strategic Command. One thing that I found out doing this book that I didn't know when I wrote the other one, when when Robert McNamara was Secretary of Defense under John Kennedy, he made a lot of reforms in the nuclear war plan, made it so you didn't have to blow up everything at the slightest provocation. He was sort of a good guy at that that time, relatively speaking. But then I, I learned while doing this book that Strategic Air Command ignored all of these directives of his. The war plan stayed exactly the same. It didn't change at all. It really didn't change much at all until about 1990. I mean, right when the Cold War was ending. So Curtis LeMay was the first major commander of SAC, and he he kept it in Omaha. And you might think originally, well, wouldn't he be out of it in Omaha? He's away from the Washington rough and tumble. Well, but that was deliberate because he could do his own war plans. He could conceive of them and he did it separate from Washington. So this whole separate bureaucracy grew up and, and some people in the Pentagon thought they had a grip on it, but they really didn't. I mean, to give you an idea, when the first integrated nuclear war plan was drawn up in 1960, it called for the following. If the Soviet Union or communist China, not if they launched a nuclear attack against us, but if they just stepped over the line, if they just made an incursion into West German territory, say, the plan, the plan was to launch all of our nuclear weapons at every target in the Soviet Union, the satellite nations of Eastern Europe, and communist China. China, even if China wasn't involved in the war. And somebody asked, well, how many people would this killed? And the answer was 285 million people. So bomb everything. Bomb everything. But I mean, you know, it is inconceivable to think of any war aim for which killing, deliberately killing 285 million people would be a proportionate response to anything. And whose plan was that? It was done in Omaha, but it was approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington. It was approved by the Secretary of Defense. And who were they at the time? It was the Secretary of Defense at the time, very briefly under Eisenhower, was a guy named Thomas Gates. The generals were just, you know, the the Joint Chiefs of Staff were the top generals and admirals of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. And this, again, this changed a little bit over the decades. You know, they came up with, well, maybe we'll withhold some of the weapons under these circumstances, but not very much. It really wasn't until decades later that Washington civilians were able to, to get a grip on this. You mentioned Curtis LeMay earlier, and he's a key figure in the development of this idea. Who was Curtis LeMay for people who are not familiar with him and what role did he play? How did he become the one to make these decisions to come up with this strategy? Well, Curtis LeMay was the commander of the 21st Bomber Group in in World War II. He did the fire— Pacific? Yes. He did the fire bombings over Japan. And there's an interesting story about this. You know, he just—I mean, the incineration— of cities, all the cities in Japan, just immense. And one day in the spring of 1945, the the commander of the Army Air Forces, Hap, our General Hap Arnold, asked LeMay, well, when will the war be over? Because Germany had already surrendered at this time, and Japan's kept on fighting. And LeMay took the question to his staff, and he came back and said, the war will be over by September 1st. 
And the reason for this is, is that, that would be the time when we would have bombed basically every square foot in Japan. We would run out of targets. So that was his philosophy of war, was to bomb everything. So when we got the atomic bomb before September 1st, obviously, and that would make his arguments even clearer. So he was put in charge of the command, strategic air command, that would control the nuclear bomb. This is SAC. SAC. And he created the war plans according to that culture. There were some people, for example, in the Air Force who had, in World War II, been involved in tactical bombing. In other words, just bombing military targets, doing close air support of the army troops, that kind of thing. They wanted to do more discriminate attacks in the Soviet Union. He goes, you know, this is just insane. You have a bomb as big as the atomic bomb. You don't waste it on one factory or an electrical power line or something like that. You bomb the entire country. That was his philosophy, and that remained the culture of the bomb for the, the next 25 years or so. What changed? What changed were a few things. First, the United States military started getting some conventional military capabilities. You didn't have to use the bomb if the Soviets invaded West Germany. You could put up a conventional defense. That generation, the LeMay generation, kind of died out, and you had Air Force officers and Navy admirals coming to the fore who had been fighter pilots, not strategic bombardiers. And then the technology changed. Missiles became more accurate. You could make warheads that were somewhat smaller. You could realistically talk about, at least in the first interval, just trying to go after a particular set of targets, not bomb the whole country into smithereens. Another thing was the Soviets built their own nuclear arsenal. You know, if they invaded West Germany and we responded by blowing up all of the Soviet Union— they could respond by blowing up all of the United States. So we lost what might have been called nuclear superiority very, very early on from any realistic point of view. So then you say— When was that, do you think? Well, I mean, John Kennedy realized in like 1962 that we, although we had many more weapons than they did, there was parity. There was an organization within the National Security Council called the Net Evaluation Subcommittee. It was very highly classified. Its very existence was classified. And every year, they did this war game where they took the weapons that we had and intelligence estimates of what the Soviets had, and they put it in a computer and cranked out the results. What would happen if a war – what would be the results? And these briefings, which were very, very closed, I mean, they were just devastating. You know, half of the economy destroyed, the government in a wreck, tens if not hundreds of millions of people killed, many more requiring medical attention that wasn't there. And Kennedy, the first time he heard this briefing, he turned to Secretary of State Dean Rusk, who was sitting next to him, and said, and we call ourselves the human race. I mean, this was just appalling, and, and it, was, it was that briefing plus a couple of other things that switched Kennedy around. Kennedy is sort of a fascinating figure in this book, is that he came to office, he was a hawk, he believed in the missile gap, which turned out not to exist. He was ready to listen to the generals on everything. And as he experienced one briefing after another and one crisis after another and saw that these guys really weren't as smart as he thought, hmm. he turned around and he saw the need to reduce nuclear weapons and take steps to end the Cold War. And he and Khrushchev, who was coming to the same conclusion, made some fairly dramatic steps toward that until Kennedy was assassinated and then a year later Khrushchev was ousted and then the arms race. That's when the arms race just took off in, 
in, in, in great energy. But there was, there was a possible pivot very early on in the Cold War that, that never happened. For a while, it felt like after the fall of the Soviet Union and the breakup, it was like every James Bond movie, the plot was about, you know, someone getting a rogue, some right. break-off group getting, you know, a rogue group of terrorists getting hold of these bombs that nobody was looking after in the yeah. former Soviet Union. Is that a realistic threat and is that ongoing? Well, I mean, it was for a while. Right after the Cold War, when the Soviet Union imploded and they just didn't have any money, that's when Senator Sam Nunn and Senator Richard Lugar started going over there and realizing they were told by people they knew in Moscow that they'd known for years that we're in trouble. You've got to help us because there are these warheads that are just sitting there. We can't pay our guards anymore. Mm -hmm. And the United States bailed them out. We spent millions of dollars helping them dismantle nuclear weapons helping them provide security to nuclear storage sites. It was done very quietly, but this was one of the great feats right after the Cold War. It's not so much a danger now, but for a few years, it was an absolutely real thing. Well, before I get to the danger now, I just want to look at points in between the you know, initial real crisis was, of course, the, in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have a lot to say about that in the book. But there are, have been other nuclear crises in between, right. right, that I don't know if people today are necessarily aware of. What are some of those? Well, even a little before Cuba, mm-hmm. there was a crisis over Berlin. And people don't know much about that at all. That's been overshadowed by Cuba. But in 1961, Khrushchev told Kennedy— you remember Berlin, you have to explain this now because people don't remember, Berlin was, was stuck inside East Germany. Mm-hmm. So West Berlin was this little enclave in the middle of East Germany. We had almost no conventional armies in Western Europe. If the Soviet Union decided we're just grabbing West Berlin, there wouldn't really very much we could do about it except fire nuclear weapons, which that was the policy that we would do. And Khrushchev said, OK, we're, we're going to grab West Berlin by the end of the year. And if you resist, we're, we're just going to take it anyway. So there were serious discussions within the Pentagon, within the White House, within the State Department. And this, a lot of the recently declassified documents. What do we do about this? And they came up with this idea. OK, if they make a move, first we'll send a company. Then we'll set a battalion. Then we'll do some economic sanctions and some flyovers. And then phase four was nuclear. 4A was we just launch one missile just to kind of send them a signal that we're serious. 4B was we use nuclear weapons tactically. We do it to knock out their armies, which are coming into West Berlin. Then C was all out, all out nuclear war. And that was never resolved. Kennedy pulled some diplomatic stuff to end the crisis before it got that way. Basically, he had his deputy secretary of defense, Roswell Gilpatrick, give a speech revealing that we knew that the missile gap was a hoax, mm. was a bluff from Russia. And that is what spurred Khrushchev, who realized, oh, my God, they know that we don't have anything. That's when he put missiles in Cuba as an intermediate step to be able to launch back something against the United States while they were developing long-range missiles. That's what led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. All right. Speaking of bluffs and threats, I want to end with 
the end point of your book, but also, as you said earlier, kind of the starting point, Fire and Fury, the reaction, it seemed in many ways from the American public was at the time, maybe a little bit more fear of how the administration under President Trump was going to handle a nuclear crisis, even more than it was afraid of the nuclear crisis itself. You're the national security columnist for Slate. Like, How big a threat do you think nuclear war is right now? How scared should we be? <laughs> I mean, it's a good question. My concern about Trump, I mean, you know, when he came in and he did the, there were two things that happened. Well, three things. He would talk about the bomb in a very cavalier way. Two, the fire and fury with North Korea. At North Korea. And then three, he was also publicizing, the Pentagon was publicizing plans to like integrate nuclear and non-nuclear weapons, build new kinds of nuclear weapons. And those three things were put together. One mistake in that was that the military's war plans, they really hadn't changed much over the period of, of decades. The difference was that other presidents who had dealt with this in crisis kind of looked at it very deeply and dug themselves out of the hole as fast as they could. The concern about Trump is, would he look at anything deeply? Would he really study this? He'll read your book. Right, exactly. Please say bad things on it in a tweet. That'll help me. And uh, will he believe some clever briefer who can show him, Mr. President, here's a way that you can do this? During that crisis with North Korea, one thing that I discovered through interviewing people, because there aren't any documents out there yet, is that the war plan that he ordered into place was quite serious. Mm. And it involved responding to a test, not even an attack on the United States, but a test. There was a period in that year when the North Koreans launched about 15 missile tests. During each one, all the commanders got together on a phone line. This would be the phone line that they would use in the event of an impending attack. And they watched it very closely. And Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, had the authority If he thought it was proper, if it looked like a missile that they were launching was threatening, to launch a ballistic missile, not a nuclear missile, Mm -hmm. but a short-range ballistic missile that was in South Korea at the North Korean test site, blowing up the test site, and it was hoped, though not said publicly, maybe killing a few leaders who were there as well. On a couple of these tests, he did launch a missile, Not at North Korea, but on parallel with the North Korean missile going out into the Sea of Japan. This was very tense. People were taking it very seriously. There were some people in the White House who thought they they had this notion called a bloody nose. Yeah, all we do is just a little punch against Kim Jong-un. Give him a bloody nose and he'll retreat. But, you know, a lot of military people thought, well, we don't think so. And if he retaliates, we're in deep trouble. So, And by the way, these war plans were devised before Trump talked about fire and fury. So he wasn't just talking out of his hat. These were real plans that were really in place. This has been soothing, Fred. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) The book is The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War by Fred Kaplan. Fred, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. 
This is John Williams, and I'm here with my colleague, Alexandra Alter, who has news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, John. I think I may be able to guess what we're going to talk about. Yes. Just based on what people are talking about around the office. Uh, it depends on which controversy you want to start with. There's a there's a variety of literary controversies. The biggest one, of course, is over the novel American Dirt by Janine Cummins, which was published only last week, although it feels like it's been out for months. There's been so many waves of backlash and controversy about it. So the latest news on that is that her publisher, Flatiron Books, announced this week that they are canceling her book tour, the remainder of her book tour. She was planning to go to 40 cities. And this was a massive book for Flatiron. They were printing, the announced first printing was half a million copies. They were really anticipating that this would be a big seller. And the criticism, I think, really took everyone off guard, at least the the degree of it. Let's, so, let's give people a thumbnail sketch of absolutely, the Absolutely, yeah. So I think this was something the author anticipated when she decided to write a novel about the immigration crisis at the border and the migrant experience. The author, as she says in her author's note, she is not Mexican and she is not a migrant, but she felt moved to write about the subject and she knew that was kind of a fraught position to be in. It was something she spoke about with me when I interviewed her, which was in December before the criticism really mounted, although there were hints of it. And I certainly spoke to people who had strong views about the book and and the way that she portrayed the migrant experience. So a lot of the criticism is about what people see as stereotypical portrayals of the migrant experience of Mexicans of Mexico in the book. But I think what's become more interesting, I guess, to me is the someone who covers the publishing industry is the book has really become this flashpoint for these very deeply embedded issues in the publishing industry, the lack of diversity in the ranks of the publishing industry, you know, that it's still, although there's been a great effort to publish more diverse voices and authors, the industry itself and its editorial ranks is extremely white and people point that out as one of the reasons this book, the rollout, the marketing behind it, there were, you know, people felt that it was done in a very insensitive way. It was positioned as the defining book on this issue, and it was written by a woman who is not from that background. And um, I think there are a lot of books in recent years, you know, written by people closer to the experience, but but this also got the million-dollar advance, which I think part people of it. also— Yeah, I think that people are saying, look where you're putting your money and your marketing, and look at the books that you're promoting over other— And there have been a remarkable number of books that have been very critically acclaimed, but they just haven't gotten that popular push. And then just throwing gasoline on the fire last week, Oprah picked it as her book club pick. Again, that is something that can really make a novel. This is not her first novel. This is her fourth book, but it was kind of treated almost like a debut. I hadn't heard of her before, and a lot of people in the industry hadn't. So when Oprah puts her seal of approval on a book, I think that can be a huge, uh, a huge boon for sales and the author's sort of career going forward. And so yeah. that became another focal point for critics to say the entire apparatus of our culture, pop culture, entertainment, and publishing is now pushing this book forward at the expense of authors who either have wrestled with similar issues or not getting that attention. And several people have said because the 
The book itself is, they see it as flawed. It's sort of perpetuating stereotypes, I suppose. I think that the the Oprah pick and other things probably affect this a lot more than the Twitter wars and and our world, which is a little bit insular, but it it did debut at number one on the bestseller list. So this marketing is working. Yes. Whether it's the controversy or the marketing, something's No, that's that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's also selling well on Amazon. And after the tour was canceled yesterday, I spoke to several booksellers just to see, you know, if they were taking the temperature of their customers and at Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C., which is a very well-regarded independent store. They had an event for Janine Cummins for American Dirt, and some of these issues were brought up in conversation. The co-owner of the store told me that the book is selling well. The event was well-attended. It was a very lively discussion, she said. But she said her customers, there was no backlash from customers that they were having the event or anything like that. The 40 city tour is pretty unheard of these days. Yes, that's an extraordinary push for the publisher to send her on a tour like that. And I think that really reflected bookseller interest, too. Mm -hmm. Those were stores that wanted to host her, and they were all around the country. So I think they were really hoping that this book would take off. And as you said, it it did debut at number one, and I haven't really seen it slowing down, but we'll follow it and see how it develops yeah, further. Yeah, and, and the publisher says that they'll replace some of these visits with town halls, whatever that means. And, yes, um, and yes. so we'll keep an eye on that too. And speaking of town halls and the civic life that that brings to mind, the other controversy this week is maybe a little less quote-unquote literary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But it does involve a book. It does. And I like to call this book by John Bolton, The Real American Dirt. (laughs) It's John Bolton's memoir, The Room Where It Happened, is the other big controversial publishing story this week. And this is taking us to the highest levels of executive power. It's National Security Council review. It's, you know, very high level stuff above my pay grade, really. It's uh, Maggie Haberman and Mike Schmidt have been covering this and broke the news of some of the book's content. But this escalated this week when a little bit of the book leaked out, as always happens. Often it's an advanced copy gets out. In this case, the publisher and the agents both deny that they had anything to do with leaking a manuscript. And it sounds like the manuscript itself hasn't necessarily leaked, but a lot of people have now reviewed it. And so Washington is very leaky these days. <laughs> and the the news got out that John Bolton does, in fact, in his memoir, describe a conversation with President Trump where he is discussing his decision to withhold military aid from Ukraine in exchange for Ukraine conducting investigations of Democrats. And this is exactly what the impeachment inquiry is about. So it's interesting that a book that is available for pre-order right now on Amazon holds the answers to these questions that senators are are wrestling with right now in this impeachment trial. And, of course, the big question that's going to be answered is, you know, whether or not the senators will vote to call witnesses and if John Bolton will come forward and testify. But it's very strange to see the publishing industry kind of at the center of this in a strange way. It's Simon & Schuster is John Bolton's publisher, and the book is supposed to come out in March. Of course, there's an attempt now to block that by the Trump administration, and we'll see how that goes. So there's intrigue in, in the Senate and also in the halls of publishing, so we'll have to keep an eye on all of that. While tracking the modified tour of American Dirt, exactly. which we'll, we'll come to you for updates on. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me.
Sarah Lyle joins us now to talk about winter thrillers. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This feels like what I want to do right now. It's cold out. It's kind of miserable. It's darkest winter here in New York in January. And don't you just want to like roll up on a sofa and surround yourself with blankets and one of these really dark thrillers? Blankets, some chocolate, something else you like. I mean, I feel like this time of year, you really don't want to be overly intellectually taxed in your reading. Like you've had a hard day, you come home and you want some kind of diversionary thing that's well-written and interesting and keeps you guessing, but you don't want to be reading something super, super challenging. It's not the right time of year for that. I think of this as maybe the antidote to impeachment news and other grim headlines And then I look at the name of one of the books here that you reviewed. You reviewed four books for a little wintry thriller roundup, and it's called Deep State by Chris Howdy, and it's about the assassination of a president. Well, it's about the attempted assassination. Attempted assassination. Alleged attempted assassination. Okay, so it's a Washington thriller, and uh, it's—I'd like to say when when you are given this great job of reviewing thrillers in this thriller roundup, they give you this massive— box of books and you get to sort of comb through and pick ones that you think are fun and a nice diverse group so they're not all about the exact same thing. And this one really stood out because I like a nice Washington thriller. I like a political thriller. I like intrigue. And it was so surprising. And of course, you you see Deep State and you think of what the the right is saying right now about how Washington is run by this cabal of sort of bureaucrats and technocrats and people who've been there forever who are conspiring against the government. And that's the starting point for this, but it's a very surprising book. It doesn't turn out quite the way you think it might. And who is our protagonist? Okay, so her name is Haley Chill, which is a weird name, but whatever. Is that remarked upon in the book? Uh, like once or twice, but then, you know, you just, she's referred to as Haley or Chill. <laughs> it's like, and she's a 24-year-old army officer, army person who's, when you see her, is pummeling another person in an army boxing match. So she's like in perfect physical condition. She's decided to leave the army and she's taken this job weirdly as an intern in the White House. And she's a bit of a Jason Bourne-like character, not that she's a, you know, in some secret government program, but she's, you know, perfect in every way. Like she's amazingly competent in everything she does. She can get out of any bad physical situation, even when people are trying to kill her. She is really good at her job as an intern. And so it's kind of amusing how imperturbable she is and with whatever's thrown at her. And the president who is at risk, is this a figure that will, like, <laughs> whose attempted assassination will delight people on both sides of the aisles? Like, who is President Monroe in this novel? Okay, so President Monroe is a populist president who was elected really against the the grain. He he campaigned as an outsider. He is pretty right-wing. He has a, a rabbly base that has permeated the Republican establishment. And he says what he wants, when he wants. He really likes Russia for some weird reason. So he sounds pretty familiar, but he's also a decorated armed services general, and he had an amazing war career. So he's a little different. Sometimes I think that anyone who has been in the military, like, listens to people like you and me talking about the military (laughs) and our attempt to grapple with various titles. Yeah, that wasn't probably the most precise title ever. That's okay. That's okay. It's not my bailiwick either. Um, But it sounds like you don't have to be a politico or a military person to necessarily enjoy this book. 
Not at all. And and the plot goes in so many different directions. And there is this great plot against this president that's there's so many high level members, you know, deputy directors of agencies, people who work directly in the White House. Part of what's funny about the book is there's all this stuff about office politics there. So she works with these other interns who are all like the sons and daughters of rich donors. They have no idea what they're doing. They spend their whole time backstabbing each other and trying to like get in to the inner circle and she has a much better ability to do that than they do so they all hate her so they're all trying to like nudge her out even as all these other things are going on they have no idea about it's really funny this brings me to a general question about thrillers which is for you what makes a good thriller i feel like some people don't really care how the book is written and they just care about plot. So they like a lot of excitement. They like a lot of plot twists. They like maybe danger and, um, you know, most like watching a movie. So there's like every scene has a new cliffhanger, et cetera. I don't, that's not my favorite. I actually would prefer a psychological thriller. I like things that have secrets from the past that bubble up in the present. But that's a very common thriller trope, and I think it's very hard to do it really, really well. Who does it well? I think it's really old-timey thriller, but my sort of er thrillers would be Presumed Innocent, you know, mm-hmm. the Scott Turow thing, which I read all night long when it came out. I was working at the Times as a, like, peon in Washington, and I was reading it as I was working, like, under my desk at night. <laughs> and I tried to read it in the taxi on the way home, and of course then we didn't have cell phones, so I was trying to get the light from the street lamps in my lap. I was so into it, and I stayed up all night. And then Barbara Vine, who is the the alter ego of Ruth Rendell, the British author who's done this incredible psychological thrillers, uh, A Dark Adapted Eye, A House of Stairs, that are among the creepiest things I've ever read. Those are my probably absolute favorites. I'm a sucker for plot, but the thing about it is is that I'm not particular. It's almost everything shocks me. I'm <laughs> always confused. I'm like a very dumb thriller reader. And so what troubles me is if the writing isn't good and the characters aren't persuasive because no matter what the plot is, I'm sort of there like – turning the pages. Uh And if it doesn't have, like if the writing is really dreadful and it doesn't have good characters and it doesn't feel persuasive at that level, then I get lost. I totally agree. So many of these plots are so absurd and so preposterous. But when you've read, you know, five thrillers in a row where there's like one sentence paragraphs and one word sentences and it starts to wear on you a little bit. I, I like something that has a little more meat to, to the writing. Like a cheat, you know, where yeah. you're where they pull out some plot twist at the end that if you then go back, you realize isn't built in. So that's that's always a big question about like an Agatha Christie thriller. Is it cheating on her part if Poirot comes out at the end and gives a solution that the clues weren't in there. Like, should you have known, you know, should you have access to all the information he had? Or is it fair that he knows things you don't know? And I agree. I'd much rather have a thriller where even if it's really subtle, you think, yes, you know, I could have seen that. Maybe I could have seen that coming or I understand how they got to the end. So I read recently a thriller, Ruth Ware's Turn of the Key, which I really didn't love. It's an interpretation of, a, you know, another reimagining of 
Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. And and last night I happened to go to a screening of a new film version called The Turning, which is yet another movie version of the Henry James novella. All of this made me want to go back to the original Henry James, which is on my list of things to do. But the where, I think what bothered me so much is that, you know, she used the unreliable narrator. You read this book, right? I did read it, yeah. And I like an unreliable narrator. but Love you know, an unreliable narrator. God, nothing's better than that. But, you know, the stakes are high. You know, you have a girl on the train, you have Gone Girl, like you, there are people that have done this pretty well. And so when someone doesn't do it well, it really kind of sticks out. Well, also, you know, what's so amazing about The Turn of the Screw is that there's no real answer. You know, it's written so beautifully that that the great question of, is she mentally ill or did these sort of supernatural things happen is never answered. And you as the reader have to use your intelligence to sort of intuit what you think is right. And I think I read the Ruth Ware really quickly. I have to say, I think it's better than the previous thrillers of hers that I've read. I think she's getting a little bit more sophisticated, but it felt like it was too, it went too far afield from what was fantastic about the original. And it was too, you know, it, it tied up things much too, too neatly for, for my taste when I I wanted the the ambiguity that I love so much. One of the interesting things I thought about Ruth Ware's Turn of the Key, her version of the Turn of the Screw, was that she chose to set it in the present day and to make the house where the governess goes an ultra-modern smart home mm-hmm. where everything mm-hmm. is recorded and everything operates via voice technology. The Turning, the new film version that is coming out, did the opposite, where it set the film in the 1990s, so deliberately chose not to have cell phone technology as an option. So, you know, the governess can't panic and, you know. That's the big issue now, is how do you do a thriller where the person can't call for help? So it has to be set, either technology has, you know, everything went down and they can't get Wi-Fi, or they're in the middle of the ocean or in the middle of the woods or whatever, but that's that's a real issue. It was fun. Last year, there was a thriller called a escape room that took place in an elevator. It was in the present day, but it was in an elevator. So, of course, God. there's no cell phone reception in the elevator. Jesus Christ. And there's like people claustrophobic. I never yes. saw that guy. That's scary just even thinking about that. Who wants to be stuck in an elevator? All right. Let's jump back to the other three novels that you review in this roundup of winter thrillers. I'm going to go through the titles quickly and then we can talk about them one by one. You also reviewed The Empty Bed by Nina Sadowski. Mr. Nobody by Catherine Stedman, and High Five by Joe Ide. Yes, I did. All right, let's talk about The Empty Bed by Nina Sadowski next. So this is the second in a series that Sadowski has been writing about the burial society, which features this woman named Catherine who runs a sort of agency helping people who need to escape from public notice for a while. So it could be battered wives. It could be people on the run from retribution from the company that they're trying to make a whistleblower complain against, et cetera. And it's written in very short sections that take place in different parts of the world. There's three or four different strands to it that don't really seem that connected. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, this is kind of good when you don't feel you have a big attention span right now. Like you don't, (laughs) you know, you don't get really get bored because you move to the next thing. The only thing is you have to sort of keep straight what's happening in each little strand. But it's quite zippy and fun. And the main story is this woman who's a young wife in London, married. They're both Americans, she and her husband. And he's been 
very distant lately, and she started drinking a lot of wine during the day. She's a little bit dissatisfied. He hasn't been that nice to her. And he suddenly says, let's go on vacation. Let's go to Paris. And she's really excited. And then at the last minute, he's like, actually, I bought tickets to Hong Kong as a surprise. And some weird things have happened. She thinks she's being followed by these guys, some strange stuff. And she they go to Hong Kong together, and they're in some super fancy hotel. And he takes an Ambien, as you do. And when he wakes up, she's not there. And so that's the empty bed. Like, what's gone? And so Catherine, this woman who runs the agency, is called in to help look for her. And a whole bunch of stuff happens <laughs> after that. And none of which you will reveal. Not really. I mean, it's pretty rollicking. You know, some of the, you know, Catherine sends over these agents who work for her to help look for this woman. And they're sort of bickering. And there's a lot of fun interplay between them. And they're they're really, really industrious in how they they go about. So there's a lot of kind of breaking into things and pretending to be someone else and, you know, investigating this stuff. So it's it's it really keeps you going the whole way through. The question I always ask when I hear second installment of, third installment of, next in the series is, can this be read on its own? Do you have to have read The Burial Society? Totally. I have no idea what happened in The Burial Society. Okay. We're good. Let's move on to our next book, which is Mr. Nobody by Catherine Stedman. Okay. So Catherine Stedman's really great because she, if you watched Downton Abbey, did you watch Downton Abbey? I did not watch Downton you Abbey. You didn't? I know. So she played Mabel, who was engaged to Henry Crawley. And this is a second thriller she's written. I, I read, read her first one. Yeah, it was really Something good, in right? the Water. This was better than Something in the Water. I mean, Something in the Water to me wasn't that exciting of a setup. Some people found a bunch of money in the water, and then it became a sort of thriller with, like, I, I seem to remember, like, gangster groups and, you a know, organized plan. crime. It was exactly, it was, it was like a simple plan, but in water. <laughs> and this was way more high concept. This was a lot better. I thought it was a lot more fun. And it's about a someone who works as a neuropsychologist who is suddenly entrusted with his patient who's adult patient who's washed up on a beach in England and has completely lost his memory or he says he has and it's based on a case a few years ago in England where that actually did happen and it's very rare according to this book that people would lose their their memory like that, where they don't know who they are. You know, they can talk and do all the things they would do, and they know about the world. They just don't know who they are. It's very rare to have a pure case of that. And this guy seems to be that. And to make matters more complicated, she's young. It's unclear why she was the one picked to do this. It feels like there's interest at the high levels, even of the government, on this person. And she starts treating him, and it's clear he, even though he doesn't say anything, that's part of the issue too, he sort of knows who she is. And she has all these secrets from her own past. She's changed her name. Her whole family had to change their names because something terrible that happened. And in order to treat this guy, she has to go back to her hometown where people might know who she is and where her identity could come out. So there's all these different strands of this mystery. All right. I'm setting this one now aside, having enjoyed <laughs> Something in the Water, Catherine Studman's previous book. And if you say this is better, I'm trusting you. Totally. But let's talk about the last one, which is part of a series, Joe Ide's High Five. This is an IQ novel. And I want to start with that same question, which is, do you need to have read the previous IQ novels to dip into High Five? I don't think you need to have. I think it would have been good. I think that it really made me want to go back and read them because he's such a great character and I would have liked to see the setup of him. And there's a few recurring characters that I would have liked to see 
how they became friends or how they became colleagues. That having been said, I thought it was fantastic as a standalone thriller. And of all these ones that we've been talking about or the ones that I reviewed for this segment, it was the best written. It was really, really, really well written. And that was the delight of it. In a way, the plot wasn't as interesting to me. So he's a guy in South Central L.A. This is IQ. IQ. Isaiah Kintabe. Yeah. So he's a guy who's grown up in this neighborhood. The author is a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. So he's sort of introduced this character who's able to use deductive reasoning the way Sherlock Holmes did to solve crimes in South Central. And they're crimes that, like, nobody would go to the police about. So he's sort of gotten this reputation of someone you can go to if you have problems. A lot of people hate him. He's always, like, getting in the face of gang members. There's a lot of really good stuff here about gang culture in a way that's super entertaining. It's not a dark novel at all, but it feels pretty gritty at the same time. And in this in this volume... He is approached by this major arms dealer who works at a South Central who wants him to absolve his, the arms dealer's, daughter of murder. So she's been arrested. There's a dead body right at her feet, basically. She says she didn't do it. And he's asked IQ to prove her innocence. And making it more complicated is she has uh, five different personalities. She has, <laughs> oh my God, Shades of Sybil. Shades of Sybil. And it's that's a little absurd, but it's very amusing what her personalities are and how IQ has to interview all of them separately about what they saw and what they thought happened. How he does it is really great, actually. Isn't split personality syndrome supposed to be one of those things that doesn't exist anymore? In the, is it like in the DSM-5? You know, it feels like one of those things that's so useful as a trope. And there's, you know, those movies where people have 20 personalities or whatever, and it's so fun to watch people act and then suddenly change oh, yeah, into like a— Edward Norton. Edward Norton's so good at that. Yeah. So it's kind of amusing, but you do have a massive degree of disbelief when you read about that. So you kind of think, oh, really? You know? As opposed to someone washing up on shore with no memory, <laughs> which is, I guess, highly <laughs> believable because it did happen. Or last a 24 year old intern in the White House working with like college students who just want to get drunk and not do their job. Does believability matter to you? Not really. I think plausibility matters a little bit. Like in the little world they've set up, does it sort of make internal sense? None of these things are remotely believable. Okay. <laughs> that that makes them all the more fun as far as I'm concerned right now. I'm going to run through the titles again. You reviewed for us Deep State by Chris Howdy, The Empty Bed by Nina Sadowski, Mr. Nobody by Catherine Stedman, and High Five, an IQ novel by Joe Ide. Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks so much. And now Sarah Lyle goes back to reporting for the politics desk here at the New York Times. I'm going to Iowa on Sunday. Very exciting. Have fun. (laughs) I wish you much intrigue. Thank you. Now we're joined by the Times' staff book critics, Carl Sagel and Jen Salai in studio and from afar, Dwight Garner, talking about their recent reviews. Hi, everybody. Hey, John. Hey, John. Hey, John. Dwight, let's start with you. You you reviewed a book about our president. <laughs> uh, yeah, just the only one, really, that's been written. I, that I can... <laughs> <laughs> a wide open field. 
<laughs> there's somebody show up in a bookstore to sign up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not Walden books, Trump books. <laughs> this is a good one. This one's called A Very Stable Genius, and it's by two reporters for The Washington Post, Philip Rucker and Carol Leonick. And what they've done is just sort of put a pause on their reporting for The Washington Post and go back and run us through the past three years. And First of all, they've done some great reporting. There's some new material here. But what really makes the book just sort of devastating is they're on the ground reporting about what things we mostly know about anyway, but just what's happened every day coming through the Trump presidency so far. We all have different politics in this world, I realize. But reading this on a page-to-page basis is just heartbreaking. The things you see about what we've taken for granted about how American democracy works. So, so it feels like there are things that they're writing about that transcend the average like political disagreement. They are not polemicists. I mean, one, one of the things, in, in many ways, this is not my kind of book. You know, the kind of politics and history I like to read is, is from someone like, you know, Gary Wills or Joan Didion, who fly slightly higher from the news and combine their intellection about things with reporting. And these two writers are quite good, but they are journalists. I mean, this is just flat, straight ahead prose, telling it like it is. But they do it so well, and they have a lot of authority as writers and as reporters. And it's the best overview that I've seen so far of where we've come since the election. Where did they stop, more or less, fairly recently? Pretty recent. I'm trying to remember now, but they, they they stopped sort of at the beginning of the of the Ukraine business, you know, that we're we're enmeshed in now. They don't go up to the impeachment hearings, but of course, it is incredible to me how quickly some of these books are being written and, and how good they are. For, I'm curious if Jen feels the same way. I feel like some of these books, literally, they're writing up to the time the book goes into your hands. Yeah, and publishing normally works on such a longer schedule than that. Yep. So, Jen, have you found? I mean, I do think that there have been some pretty uh, well put together. Yeah. I mean, I think when publishers decide to crash these books and if they're working with, in the case of the book that Dwight reviewed, experienced reporters who are used to these, the daily churn of just new information, they're able to do it. And this one sounded fascinating. I think for anyone, even at a monthly magazine, that the pace of book publishing can seem just Glacial. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Jen, since since we're talking to you, let's go to go to your book. You you reviewed actually a really interesting book that you came down, I would say, negatively on, but that in concept is is pretty fascinating. The book that I reviewed is called My War Criminal, and it's by Jessica Stern. And she's a scholar of terrorism and trauma, and she's written a few other books, a couple of them about extremism and religious militancy, a book on ISIS. She was an advisor of some type to Clinton. Yeah, she was on she was on the National Security Council staff in the Clinton administration, which is also kind of an interesting thing because she was there during the time of the war in the Balkans. And so her book is structured around, you know, what she calls her encounters with Radovan Karadzic, the Bosnian Serb leader who's currently serving a life term in prison in The Hague for genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. And so the way she describes it is that she didn't actually have much of a background in terms of Balkan history. And I think that that, that does show in her encounters with him and her she, interviews she, with she him. She encountered him in person. She encountered him in person. It took her a few years to get access. So she wrote to the International Tribunal in The Hague to request access in 2011, and I think she didn't start interviewing him until 2014. Did she say she why was she rebuffed. wanted to do this, given that she didn't have so, a lot of Yes. Yeah, so in? I should also say, in addition to the books that she's written on the subject of extremism and militancy, she also has her own experiences with trauma, which she, you know, she sort of mentions in passing, but she's the child of a 
Holocaust survivor, and she herself was a victim of rape as a teenager in her home. And so, and, and she wrote an entire book, a memoir. About and she some wrote of a that. memoir about that, exactly called Denial, which came out about a decade ago. In this book, you know, she says that she really wants to understand his motivations, how he saw things, and she herself has interviewed many terrorists before. And Karadzic is a war criminal rather than a terrorist in terms of strict definition, mm-hmm. but. She says that she has this method where she loses her sense of self and tries to immerse herself in the moral logic of the person she's interviewing. The thing about this book, though, is that if you're going to turn that method into a book that you're communicating to others, I think it requires a lot of, you know, additional... Maybe maybe not losing yourself. At, well, as you're yeah. writing it, you need to get back into yourself. Right, exactly. And, 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 and the way she sort of writes it, there's, there's an aestheticization that happens, which I found really off-putting, yeah. I guess, is, and, and, and surprising, where she talks about it as this heightened drama between the two of them. And, you know, one of the things that Karadich did when he was a fugitive from justice was that he disguised himself as a faith healer. So at the very beginning, she describes this meeting that she had with him where he offers to explain how bioenergetic healing works, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so he's waving his hands above her head and she's describing it in the sense of, you know, should she feel threatened? But... You know, at the same time, she's kind of intrigued. I mean, the whole thing How is weird. the whole thing <laughs> is really the, yeah. The whole thing is really weird. And I mean, I, I, I should say off the bat that in terms of you know a writer wanting to interview somebody who has done horrific things, I mean, I don't think that that project is necessarily totally worthless. I yeah. mean, I'm sure that there are some readers who just wouldn't necessarily right, right. want to even right. Yeah. But I should say that it's been done before. It's been done in interesting. Ways before, I mean, Gita Shireen, who wrote the book about Franz Stengel, one of the Nazis who was held in a German prison in the 70s. And of course, podcast darling Emmanuel Carrere. And Emmanuel Carrere. his book, The Adversary, which was very interesting. Right. But I think in those cases, I mean, the writers were very careful. Well, and also to use the word Dwight used about a very stable genius or other books like Joan Didion and Gary Wills, there's intellection in those books yes. around maybe more around like what is actually going on and, and more angles on it. I mean, Stern doesn't come across as somebody who doesn't know anything. You know, anything that Karadich says to her that's factual, she says she looks up, but at the same time, she does entertain these rationalizations that are really quite monstrous. It sounds to me like, you know, these are interesting projects, but with a lot of potential pitfalls, and she just falls into more of them than you yes. would want someone to. Yes, yes, like I think that. so. Parl, you reviewed a book that also sounds, it's funny, all these books are, there's something disturbing about all three of these books. You reviewed a book called A Woman Like Her. Tell us briefly what that's about. I reviewed a really impressive first book by the journalist Sanam Mahar. And it's a book about the life and the death of Kandil Baloch, who's called Pakistan's first social media star. And she was notorious or beloved for posting these weird, campy, provocative videos on Facebook, kind of lolling around in her bed and mocking mullahs. And she's just, she just seemed so fearless and yet her own motivations, one couldn't really parse them, but she was just this this figure that everybody watched, you know, and and judged and was entertained by. And in 2016, she was killed by the youngest of her six brothers in a so-called honor killing. And what this book does is is something that I feel is is very rare. You know, I mean, we've all read books like this before, like there's some kind of enigmatic woman, there's some kind of tragedy, and these books often purport to tell us who the real woman was. And I think 
Mahar is interested in more subtle questions. He really respects what she cannot know about Kandil Baloch, what the, the fact that Kandil Baloch cannot speak in this book. And she wants to look more at the people that looked at her. What did we see? What did Pakistan see when they looked at this woman? Where did the fascination come from? What are the forces that enabled this murder, right? So one person killed her, but what was the force of the public judgment? How was she harassed online? How was she hounded? And then the book opens up into exploring this these sort of fault lines that social media is creating in conservative societies like Pakistan, like many others. Even this, it'll, it'll probably be very familiar, I think, also to some American readers in that mm-hmm. social media can offer you this opportunity for self-presentation, to create personas based on yearning, exaggeration, camp. But what are the penalties in real life? And she looks at other, like as the title suggests, other women like her following Jen. <laughs> This is a writer who's so conscious of the pitfalls, and she's so conscious of how to tell this story in a way that doesn't sensationalize or sentimentalize this person. Yeah, or reduce. Or reduce this person. How do you really write about what you can never know, but at the same time going to Baloch's village and showing us how this this incredibly, this woman who grew up very poor, abused, had to go to women's shelter, lost her son, made herself into this entirely other being— And even in the context of this short, very tragic life, the kinds of possibilities that she did open up, even if you were offended by her or couldn't fully understand her or she wasn't for you, there was a space she was creating. (laughs) She was 26 when she was murdered. She was 26. And and, and so when she was doing this online, was she going to any lengths to sort of keep people from knowing who she really was? She was. Yeah, yeah. and so it it was really just the days before her death where her identity was discovered. You know, she'd been, there was a big scandal with this mullah, and so then she became much more a figure of, you know, who is she? Let's find her. Let's, And then the details of her family came tumbling out, and then there was this pressure that her her brothers, her six brothers, you know, now and it, it's not entirely clear who participated, but one brother's been sentenced to life in jail, which is actually quite rare because of mm-hmm. her, a particular law about so-called honor killings was changed in Pakistan. And now the older brother's been extradited from Saudi Arabia. The story is going on and on. And there's that aspect also in this book where it's not it's not the final word, but it's a really, I think, interesting, useful, and very subtle intervention in some of these stories. Yeah, about something that's probably not going away, like you said, even in some communities here, but definitely yeah. in many around the world. So we have, as we as we sometimes do, we'll go to a lighter note after three fairly heavy books, um, and about the deaths of people and and political systems. A reader named April Speck Ewer wrote in saying that we we talked recently about I don't remember this exact conversation, but one of us said that editors don't like the word compelling. Yes, that was me. <laughs> that was Parl, and they and they tend to strike. I don't Death remember. To compelling. I, I think you had internalized that enough by the time I became your. I don't think I've ever struck I've ever compelling. Used it. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, but so April is curious uh, about other words and cliches you work to avoid when writing, and I also expanded it to say because I know that there are things I like to do that aren't necessarily cliches, but I just hate that I do it so often. Yeah. So you, you just. <laughs> You get sick of yourself. <laughs> Dwight, do you have anything that comes to mind? Well, cliches are a whole different topic. Like, yeah. I could talk for an hour. I mean, cliches are – I'm just – I'm amazed that you know, in, in our electronic era, the publishers don't yet have some kind of system that will just – you know. <laughs> Tell, alert you to them in books because so many of them are, are they're cliches because we know what they are. But let's leave cliches aside. I mean, in terms of words I hate, is that the question? Yeah. In criticism. In, in yours or other people's criticism well, when you see them. Okay. Specifically well, this, my reviews, Dwight. <laughs> about a year ago, I, I printed out a, on a little slip my least favorite 10 words. And it's since grown to 13. But can I run through them really quickly? Of course. And are these, But are these words that you've noticed in other people's work and you want to avoid using yourself? Yes, pretty okay. much. Okay. Okay, one I hate, risible. 
I do not oh, like the word visible. Awful, awful. A risible word. I could talk for five minutes about each one. <laughs> I hate the word titular. The titular lead Oof. character of the book yes. really rubs me the wrong way. The word blaring. Why do I hate the word blaring? Blaring? Like oh, the, blaring. It's an ugly like a word. Horn? I don't hate blaring. Like a horn? Yeah. See, the, there's, there's this great, there's a great, I don't, I don't know if you guys it. ever ever looked at the Economist magazine style guide. But <laughs> Just before bed every night. <laughs> there's, there's this great line in it. They, they write in the front, they write, words that are horrible to one writer may not be horrible to another mm-hmm. writer. But if you're a writer for whom no words are terrible, you should do something else with your life. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Anyway, I'm going to keep going. Okay, downright. I don't like the word downright. Mm-hmm. Like that's downright X. And I'm from West Virginia. I mean, you think I could get I could get along with the word downright, but I can't. The word penned. Ooh, like, pen. Pen is a well, verb. No, no. Nobody likes pen. Pen is a verb. Pen is a verb. Read is a noun. You know, a, a right. good read. Right. Only a few more. Compelling. That's of course there. <laughs> Lyrical. Oof. Obviously there. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm like groaning so audibly. I just. <laughs> Probably very visceral reaction. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, but it's really Only three it's more. really offensive. Cheetos. I really hate the word kudos. What is that? What word? Kudos. That's why you hated the title of the Cusk book. Exactly. But it's a lovely book. Um, (laughs) Exquisite is is a bad one. Yeah. And Tome. The T-O-M-E. Oh, Oh, yeah. Tome is. Okay. Yeah. No, those are are all rock solid. Yeah. I mean, I I, I, I I should add to this list. But anyway, I'm going to add to it right now when you guys talk. (laughs) Pen pen is horrible. No one pens anything. Parle. Oh, he's, he said many of mine, like really pen is a verb, tome is a noun. No, I've got to go. Um, I, I really, I dislike lyrical. I don't like compelling, gripping, thought-provoking, thoughtful. Um, Are there any words? I though? feel like the word indelible has become like a real mm. critic's favorite. But you know what? I do something different. I keep a list of words that I love. And those are the words I'm very conscious of when you know, the words I'm going to reach for that somehow excite me right. <laughs> and that I feel like I'm in danger of leaning on. So that's the, that's what, what just I, one or I'm two, not going to never, no? ever, no, uh, no, no, no. All right. Cause then I would know to look for them. Jen, how about you? <laughs> Jen has a look like, on her face. My favorite word. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, <laughs> like, Dwight had a couple there where I was like, well, not so bad, but I won't say. Yeah, yeah. You try to get blaring into every review. I try to get blaring downright. (laughs) The risk in my books, and this is a word I don't think I've ever used because I review a lot of these big nonfiction books, is magisterial. Oof, good for you. That's a bad one. I I think that that word very, very, very infrequently and properly used can be okay. But I agree that that's in general you don't want to see it. Because what what does it mean? Big and good? Is that (laughs) also no 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 also by a man usually. Right, right, right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Jen and I were talking before we came um, on air about words that— Ones that John detests. Ones that your editor doesn't like. But, of course, oh, you yeah. three are all—I'm not just blowing smoke. I mean, you guys—there aren't a lot of word okay, fights. But I've, I've when run, does, when I've does, run okay, across I think this. This is, this is what I like. When does John come for you? I know. A I, of you, know you know what it is. I know what John's is for me, well, too. Well, <laughs> one of my least favorite is Indeed. And I, I don't use— no, of course. Indeed, really. No, you don't use it often. I really have But a... I think I've used it ironically and <laughs> got <did>. into trouble. <laughs> indeed. So, indeed. So, I've I've stopped that rather rather, rather. as like not this rather than this this. Yes. You yes. don't like that. You, you, know, you like I, an American instead? I, Is that I the... guess what I don't like? I, I guess it's going to make it like that. I'm going to make it like... all about <laughs> Canada versus Canada versus U.S. I'm going to win. The, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll take America and the points. Um, no, I think that there are words like indeed, rather, meanwhile, that are sort of directional words that I think of as more in 
not academic, but it's almost like a, oh, a no, speech kind of situation no, where you're drawing people's attention yeah. to different things. And so I just like to avoid those when I can. Moreover. No. More. Wow. <laughs> that, that's one I wouldn't use. Nonetheless. No, I think, I th- nonetheless, I think that we've, we've had a good segment here. All right. So before we move on, let's, let's list again those books you reviewed most recently. Dwight. I reviewed A Very Stable Genius by Philip Rucker and Carol Leonig. And Jen. I reviewed My War Criminal by Jessica Stern. Carl. I reviewed A Woman Like Her by Sana Mahar. Dwight, thanks for calling in, as always. And thanks to readers for sending in questions. Please send in more. We always have fun with them. And thanks for being here, Paul and Jen. Thanks, Jen. Thanks. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. Not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.